The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 3. So the question is here, hate, when people hate, revile, exclude you, then dance for joy because... Now, wait a minute, it says, hate, revile, exclude you, on account of the Son of Man. Now, what if they hate, revile, and exclude me because I'm a jerk, or an egocentric, or a pain in the neck, you know, uh, or something like that? There's no reason, then, for me to rejoice and, and leap for joy. <laughs> My reward in heaven will not be all that great. <laughs> Nevertheless, if I'm a jerk or a egocentric or, you know, whatever it is, and those who hate me and revile me and exclude me do so so unanimously that what begins to take place is something that is socially generative. You see, now I'm appealing to this notion of, um, of Bob Harriman Kelly, which is the a generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, which is what he, that's his phrase for uh, uh, the uh, mimetic process that leads to scapegoating, as Girard describes it. And uh, I, I like that phrase, it's a little, it's a mouthful, but I like the word generativity because it helps us locate the moment at which things change. And we no longer have something which is just, well, somebody is a pain in the neck and people don't like them. But if that begins to build and build and build and suddenly the fact that a lot of people don't like that person or think that person is the problem, that thing begins to have social generative, that phenomenon begins to have socially generative effects. And it's at that point that this person, so designated by this functioning unanimity, in some way begins to experience this expulsion on behalf of the Son of Man. Now the problem is, he or she may not know it. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's what what the gospel is trying to do is to is to find somebody in that situation and let them in on it, you see, so they can behave properly in that circumstance and and be a a, a representative of the gospel revelation. For example, in John's gospel, Jesus says, "The hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think he's doing a holy duty for God." This is that's when the generativity is operating. When this, when this, when this uh, despised one, the dis, the the spite of the community is beginning to have generative effects. When they're, everybody's sure this is what we have to do. This is what we're called to do. But for me, it's even more profound. Is is a little uh, phrase in Colossians where uh, where uh, Paul says, "My sufferings help make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ." And there are many ways to read that. That's been interpreted a thousand ways. But I think we should read it in terms of how each person who finds himself in that role of the victim uh, is does have an opportunity 
to experience that expulsion and that reviling and that hate and contempt on behalf of the Son of Man and to, and to recognize, as Paul says, that my sufferings are making up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's to say, there's nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ. But what, I think we have to read that historically. You see, as the gospel begins to work itself out in human history, these episodes will continue to occur. And occasionally it will fall to us, and the more deeply committed we are as Christians, the more likely they will, that we'll find ourselves in that situation. Maybe not, maybe so. But if we do, th these passages in Luke, John, uh, Paul, and elsewhere are, are saying, don't run from that. Don't be quick to join the crowd. Realize that in that experience, you can undergo that experience, endure that experience for the sake of the Son of Man and be part of the gospel in a way that you never dreamed of, you see. And so, on looking back, one realizes that it, it, something is revealed there, an intimacy with the Christ experience, of a, a closeness to the God that Jesus called Father begins to develop. Once one knows, one is in that situation and realizes it, so looking back, Luke says, you will dance for joy. You will rejoice and leap for joy. Now again, this is we, it's you know we could easily flip into some kind of romantic thing. It, it, we should never do that. At the heart of the gospel, there's a tremendous sadness, and it cannot be erased. The greatest joy cannot erase it. The joy and the sadness happen at the same moment, and and we flee from that if we get morose and. Uh, uh, sort of, I think. I think sometimes, you know, this, the Spanish religiosity of the 16th, 17th century uh, got away from that. Sometimes, uh, the, the you one sees this in uh, in uh, some of the folk religiosity in, in my tradition, the Catholic tradition. One sees a little bit uh, too much of the lacrimose, without the sense of the profound meaning of this and uh, likewise you get this bubbly uh, resurrection uh, kind of thing that doesn't have doesn't isn't grounded in the crucifixion but uh, the Christian tradition it happens at the same moment okay which brings me to the next point which is this says and it begins to look a lot like retri retributive justice it says your reward will be great in heaven will be great in heaven and uh, so is God, some kind of scorekeeper. And uh, if you do, if you pay the price, you get the, you, you know, you get the reward. I think one does, can't rule out the fact that one's sufferings have future consequences. Nevertheless, the reason we laugh when we look back is because the kingdom. And this world, to use the New Testament terminology for these two uh, realities, the kingdom and this world are not separated chronologically. Now, our experience of them may be chronological. We may experience one first and then the next, or we may experience them alternately. But they're not separated fundamentally chronologically. 
We were closer to this back when we used the language of, of the supernatural. Have you noticed that we haven't used the word supernatural in uh, 50 years? I mean, I guess people have, but it's, it's really quite a quaint little term. And I can understand why we don't, really. Today, supernaturalism is almost always pagan. So when we hear the word supernatural, we think of Transylvania. We think of some weird thing, you know, some kind of seance. Didn't used to be. I mean, when uh, when when this term was used in in times past, it had a significance. It reminded us that the that the kingdom and this world are not separated chronologically. Not to say that there isn't a chronological feature to it, because we we do live, at least in this world, in the temporal order, so that it has a it also has a chronological uh, uh, dimension. Okay. I'm talking too much, and there's so much else to talk about, so I want to get on with it. Let me go to the, the big one. The, for me, it's the really the big one, and it's this. I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek as well. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to anyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask them for them in return. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, in other words, don't do to others as they do to you, but as you would have them do to you. Doing to others as they do to you is the old way of doing things. It's the, it's the world of reciprocity. So, so let me ask this. Jesus says, love your enemies. And I would ask, why? Because they're really nice people after all? No, I don't think so. Not necessarily. Because for their sake? Maybe. I mean, why not? They're, God loves them. But let's think about this. You see, I think this is the most radical thing in the gospel. Love your enemy. I think I mentioned earlier in our series on Luke, James Breach. I'm not sure I did, but I may have because I was thinking about it recently. He says at the end of his book, The Silence of Jesus, he says, Jesus is the most loving and least sentimental man one could imagine. So when he says, love your enemies, he's not, you know, it's not some kind of sentimentality. This is something that has, goes right to the heart of it. What does it mean to love your Jesus, it's, it's a way of, Jesus says, love your enemies and watch what happens. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you and watch what happens. You see? Loving one's enemies and praying for those who abuse us and so on and so forth is a recipe for destroying the little bundle of lies about myself and my society that came into existence the moment when I and my tribe found somebody to hate. And, so, and we, we get this at the end of today's session with the, the Gerizim demoniac. In other words, if you follow this injunction, love your enemies, pray for those who abuse you, it's not as not just that. Oh well, then you'll be nice and you'll, you know, be a good person and long suffering and all that. You will destroy the whole, the whole system of mystification, 
which has been your, the womb in which you have lived and moved and had your social existence heretofore. It's the recipe for deconstructing the whole business. So I think it's, we have to recognize the profundity of that. Now to underscore that, let me just uh, mention again something that I have mentioned recently. Uh, and it's an observation by Christopher Dawson, the historian, about the Christian incursion into, into Northern Europe. And he says in the uh, northernmost parts of Europe, Scandinavian countries, the uh, Christian incursion uh, took place uh, very late. And in some of these, the archaic character of the existing cultures uh, survived down to the 12th century. And he says, he speaks of the uh, uh, cultures in uh, Swedish and Norwegian and Icelandic uh, uh, regions where there was a priest king whose chief function was to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people for good harvest and to be sacrificed if his sacrificial offerings didn't work. And uh, Dawson talks about how the coming of Christianity uh, shoved a uh, stick in the spokes of that whole system and caused a social and religious revolution. And uh, then he said, and I'll quote this and just reflect on it for a second in terms of loving your enemies. He said, it was hard for warlike barbarians to accept the Christian ethic of renunciation and forgiveness in their rulers who had been the living embodiment of their pride of blood, as we see from St. Bede's story of King Siegbert of Essex, who was killed, quote, because he was wont to spare his enemies and forgive them the wrong they had done as soon as they asked him, end quote. In other words, he was trying to love his enemies, you see, bless those who curse you, and his people rose up and killed him. That, what does that say to us? That suggests, I would suggest, that he was tampering with a mechanism that's very dear to conventional culture. And that, and that when it's compromised, the social instinct is to somehow substitute for it and regenerate it. So, and I would take this back to Jesus saying, love your enemies. It's not a pious little thing. It's not a nice little moralism. It's something that will, that will deconstruct the whole mythological world. And t t something I think is apropos of that, I happen to be reading it Thursday morning, right before the Thursday morning class, which was an article in the New York Times, and I'll read to you two paragraphs from it, apropos of this. It has to do with uh, institutions that keep the concern for enemies, which is a sort of a, a generic form of loving your enemies, institutions that keep the concern for enemies from being completely erased by cultures that would like to erase them if they could. And here's how the story goes. Freedom House, the New York-based human rights organization that monitors political liberties, civil rights, and press freedom worldwide, has been denied participation in United Nations events as a, an accredited, unofficial group. Still quoting, several other organizations faced challenges last week from a loose coalition of nations, including China, Cuba, India, Indonesia, Iran, and the Sudan, which has been, this coalition, which has been campaigning to curtail the growing influence of human rights groups in international affairs. 
Another application that was challenged was submitted by the Physicians for Human Rights, a Boston-based group that does extensive volunteer work for the United Nations at its own expense, including exhuming victims of genocide. But the group's application was finally approved when India, which objected to the organization's reporting on the medical evidence of military atrocities in Kashmir, apparently was unable to gain enough support to block it, diplomats said. End quote. It seems a little non sequitur, but I, I don't think it is. I think it shows that, that cultures realize that if you begin to tamper with that, the whole thing will unravel. If you begin to be concerned for your enemies, which is how it would be expressed in a, in institutionally, you see, the institutions don't love their enemies, but they have a moral concern for them. If you s suddenly become interested in your enemies, then the whole thing will unravel. And I think these, the, the, the cultural reflex represented by these, these uh, nations that are mentioned in this article uh, understand, in a way, that what's at stake. So following on this injunction to lo uh, love one's enemies, he told them a parable. We'll come to the question of parables a little bit later. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Or can the, bli uh, bl the blind lead the blind? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but anyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye and not notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take, out the, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to, clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Well, this is a cluster of sayings, and they're not... And they're, you know, they're not exactly related to each other, but to some extent they are, and they have to do with this problem of what Gerard calls the doubles. That is to say, being caught up in the melodrama, in some kind of uh, melodramatic tangle. You see, where you're seeing, you're you're scandalized by them, they're scandalized by you. You're condemning them, they're condemning you. Uh, you can't get out of it, and it it's connected to can the blind lead the blind. You see what I mean? Something, in other words, you're inside of this system. Something has to come in and lead you out. So some, someone who's not part of that has to come in and get your attention. Sebastian Moore is very good uh, about about this sort of thing in uh, in his book, and I can't remember which book it is, where he where he essentially says, you know, uh, Jesus comes and uh, entices us lures us, arouses our interest, arouses our desire for him. He becomes the fascinating one. And we're all sitting around being totally fascinated by each other and by whatever specters are, are, are floating around in our world. And, uh, and we're caught up in exactly this stuff. And he comes in and becomes fascinating and we follow him out. Because he, he, he came in, he can get out. This is John's Gospel, the idea of the of uh, the Christ who descends and asks in. He, he can come in and he can get out, you see. And so we find, so the gospel is saying, is talking here about models. If you model on each other, A, you're going to fall into a pit. And what's the pit? The pit is when you see the, your, the speck in your neighbor's eye and you know that's the problem. And your neighbor sees the speck in, in your eye, or maybe it's a log, and he knows that's the problem. And neither one of you can see your participation in it. That's when the blind lead. That's the blind lead the blind. 
That's the world of the, that's the mimetic crisis. You see? When Jesus says, can the blind lead the blind? He's talking about what happens in a world with no transcendence. Suddenly everybody's looking to everybody else, but nobody represents anything truly transcendent. And so the connection between the, blind, the passage blind leading the blind and the next one, which is these two people accusing each other of being the problem with the speck and the log in their eye, uh, you have you have that descent into the into this the whole mimetic scandal that is so much so prevalent in the modern world. So the model is this one who is not blind or who is not blinded. Now, by the way, he's talking about blind, and then you have the parable of the speck and the log in the eye. You see what I mean? So it's what is the source of blindness? Am I blind because I'm blind from birth? Well, there is that to some extent. But here the blindness, if these can be related, has to do with the scandal. The way the New Testament uses the word scandal. The scandal means this precisely this, this, uh, this compulsive preoccupation with the other and uh, being all tangled up in uh, emotionally entangled with this other like that. And Jesus is the one who can see. So he's the model. Now, the model has to be outside that whole system. Now, there are two figures outside that whole system. One is God, and one is the scapegoat that brought the system into being. And in Christian theology, Christology, Jesus is both. He's the human outsider, as I say, the, the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. And he's the son of the living God. He's the incarnation of the living God. So he's the outsider par excellence in bo on both counts. And he's the one that can lead us out. Because he's the only one that's really outside of it. Both metaphysically outside of it and socially outside of it. And he experiences as the, the scapegoat, the epistemological privilege of the scapegoat, and he experiences it as the son of the living God, the, the uh, immense epistemological privilege that comes with that. So he can lead us out. Otherwise, we have nothing but each other, which is the blind lead the blind. We fall into a pit and we're into this snarl, which takes us to the tension between Jesus and John. And if there's anything in the gospel that has the potential of, of uh, creating this kind of conflict for Jesus in his ministry, it's the relationship between Jesus and John. So the, so the uh, disciples of John come to Jesus. John is in prison for having gotten into just such a snarl with Herod Antipas. He was a sort of in-your-face prophet in terms of Herod. And now Herod has thrown him into prison. And he, he sends his disciples and he, they say to Jesus, are you the, the one who is to come or must we wait for another? And Jesus says, he doesn't answer. Again, he's very careful not to scandalize. He says, just look around and report to John what you see and hear. And then he quotes from Isaiah. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news brought to them. 
So go back and tell John what you've seen. And the last verse is, blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. And so it concludes this other passage, you see. Jesus is not going to scandalize. John scandalized when he flew into Herod's face. This is a little bit like, you know, if there's a hit and run uh, episode, you see. A car comes careening down, hits a little old lady, and she falls in the corner. There are two people here. One of them chases the car because he's angry with this guy for having done that. And the other person goes over to take care of the little lady who's got to run over. Jesus is the one that goes to the little lady. And John's the one that goes to the guy driving the car. And that's not fair in a sense. But the point is, John went to Herod. And Jesus went way out in the boondocks and started healing people. You see what I mean? And, it, and John fell into scandal. And scandal, what is scandal? The, the plank in your own eye and the speck in the other's eye. And the whole falling into the pit. And John did exactly that. And Jesus said, Blessed is he who is not scandalized by me. So, now what I want to do for a few minutes is think about this business of scandal and Jesus' concern that his mission, inherently scandalous in some way, not scandalize more than the gospel scandalizes inherently. There will be scandal as we hear but woe to those who scandalize. Okay, so there are two parables I want to talk about briefly. One is, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When the river rose, the river burst against the house but did not shake it because it had been well built. The one who hears and does not act, however, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. And, end quote, and I, so the implication is that the river is going to rise no matter what. And the parable is concerned about those who have heard the gospel. It, has, it is not at all concerned about those who have not heard the gospel. The implication, I think, is that those who have not heard the gospel are not in the same peril as those who have heard the gospel. They have other protections. But those who have heard the gospel have, have to some extent, to the extent that they have really heard the gospel, they have relinquished these protections. And so the rising river is all the more likely to sweep them away. And I think we should interpret this ontologically. If you hear the gospel, the demythologizing factor in the gospel, love your enemies, as I said before, love your enemies and see what happens. If you start to do that, if you start to see the whole world from the point of view of those who are, who are its objects of contempt, then suddenly the mythological system, which, which uh, is based on seeing it from the point of view of the, of the victimizers, begins to fall apart, and you don't have those structures anymore. And so you're exposed. You're out there on your own. The, the, the levees and the dikes and all of the cultural structures that would protect you from the rising river are no longer there. So it's just a question of whether you, 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 whether you have uh, ontological moorings or not, to use uh, Gabriel Marcel's term. And so I think that's an important 
entree for understanding what comes next or a little while later in the gospel. Now, Jesus says to, to hear the words and to act on them. And we should not read that, I think, in an overly activist way. And, and I'll try to... It comes out in the next, the next parable. Obviously, Luke is interested in Christian behavior. That is to say, helping the poor, helping those outcasts, uh, having an eye and an empathy for those uh, who are less fortunate, and so on. And Luke is very interested in that. On the other hand, when Jesus here says, acting on what one has heard, I don't think we should immediately read that in terms of activism because uh, it can be something else, which the, a parable that comes shortly thereafter indicates. And here's how it develops. A great crowd of people gathered, and Jesus told them a parable. So he's now talking not to the disciples, but to the crowd, and he's telling them a parable. It's a very familiar parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled. Birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock. As it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew, grew with it and choked it. Some fell on good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. So it's a, he underscores it. There's a little parable for you. Now, pay attention to it. Now, later, uh, as he, he, he'll be asked to interpret the, the, the story, and when he interprets it, he, he will say that the, the seed is the word of God, which is to say the gospel. The seed is the word of God, the word that Jesus is preaching, which is the gospel. Now, the parable of a seed, first of all, we should appreciate what he's saying about the seed. The seed falls to the ground. You know, it's, this is not a big planting exercise. This is not digging, planting, wa watering. This is somebody sowing, just throwing them out as you go along like that. It falls on the ground. And then it begins to germinate. And it grows. And it sinks its roots in. And it sends up its stalks. You see, this is another... This is how the gospel works. Now, conventional culture works either instantly or not at all. Conventional culture, uh, Girard argues this when, when he talks about c culture founding episodes, he says the, the catharsis that, are, that accompanies the, the sacrificial denouement is either instant or it never happens. It either happens at that moment, that crisis moment when the mob is at its frenzied peak and in a unanimous heat, you see, or it doesn't happen. So it's instant like that. And when it happens, it's stunning, and all the myths then just evolve, but they evolve from a, from a moment which is decisive like that. But the, so that's the generativity of that moment, the mythic and cultural generativity of the, of the sacrificial founding of things. But the gospel works the other way. The gospel is the paraclete, you know, working slowly over time, gradually, mercifully, you see mercifully because it enters very gently falls on the soil and then it begins to sink its you begin to feel that this thing is sending its roots down 
and you know sending tentacles out and it's taking hold and so I think we should just appreciate that it happens that way well so the the disciples now this is, could the disciples have been this dumb this is one of the questions you have to ask you know in in uh, in in Mark's gospel the disciples are pretty thick headed and that and that's true in all the gospels in a way but here the disciples ask him what the parable means and so he answers it's a little bit of a non sequitur because he says he answers as though they had asked him why he tells parables now this may be because uh, Luke is patching together certain traditions and he you see what I mean and that might have been the question associated with this next verse but Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. He's talking to his disciples now. He spoke this parable to the crowds. The disciples are his intimate, more intimate uh, uh, followers. They say, explain it to us. And he says, you, uh, to you is given the understanding of the kingdom of God. But to others I speak in parables, so that, and then he quotes Isaiah, so that looking they may not perceive and listening they may not understand. I think we have to understand that Jesus realizes what's in that parable just before about the house and the foundation. That is to say, those who hear the gospel but aren't, can't, can't or aren't ready or whatever to put it into to practice, to found their lives on it, to root their lives in it, build their, their, their life foundation on it, are going to be imperiled by it. And there's a kind of mercifulness here speak to them in parables the parable is like a giant Rorschach test you see if you want to get it you'll get it and if you're if you're not in the, in the position or the mood or the receptivity to get it you won't get it and it won't do anybody any harm now this is being a little bit too breezy with all this but I think we should appreciate this passage about why Jesus speaks in parables in terms of the of the of how generous it is and how concerned it is. In other words, you, you wouldn't feel this way unless you realized that how, how powerful the gospel is, how much like dynamite it is. Dunamis is the word that Paul uses. How much it can explode. When you, when you say, love your enemies and bless those who curse you, it's like lighting a fuse under the whole structure. And the gospel and very likely Jesus seems somehow to know that. And so they it's, the gospel is presented in, in a parabolic way so that it won't become a source of scandal and, and subject people to something they're not ready for. There are other ways of looking at this thing, no doubt, but that I think is, is helpful. So... Jesus now tells them what the parable means, and it's very obvious the, the, the uh, ones on the path are those who hear and the devil takes away, and the ro rock are those who hear the word and there's no moisture, no joy. Uh, those who uh, uh, live among the, or ha the seeds that fall among the thorns are choked by the pleasures and passions of this life, and the good soil are those who hear the word, quote, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patient endurance. Now, bearing fruit's a big thing for Luke. It's very important that you bear fruit. It's not enough. The Christianity is not something in your head. It's a way of life. 
It's not a set of doctrines. It's not a set of beliefs. It's a way of living. So you, you, you must live that way in order to get it. You don't get it unless you live that way. However, this passage here says, those who are the good soil hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patient endurance. Now that means that bearing fruit is not something I do. You see what I mean? It goes back to the whole metaphor of the seed. Something is beginning to send its roots down and send its tentacles up in my life. And if I start saying, well, let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there and bear fruit, it's, you miss the whole metaphor. It's not a metaphor about productivity it's, I mean, in the sense of an assembly line. It's not a metaphor about making things or developing things. It's an agricultural metaphor. You are the soil. You're just the soil, you see. You're, or you're the, you're the plant life, if you want to look at it that way. You, something's happening, but you're not making it happen any more than, you see what I mean? I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to recognize both the, the productivity of the process, uh, but also, in a sense, the, the receptivity. And not, not exactly passivity, but something has to be endured in order for this to, uh, for these fruits to develop. They develop on their own almost. So earlier he had said, Jesus said, I tell them parables so that looking they may not perceive and listening they may not understand, which sounds to us crazy because we think of it in terms of kind of hiding the gospel. But shortly thereafter he says, for nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. And I think this is a really important passage because it means that everything is going to be revealed. And, and uh, slowly but surely, all those things hidden by the, the old sacred system are going to be revealed. And things hidden in our own lives by the lies, by the lies that we... That, that we participate in because of our participation in that system will be revealed. And then he says, then therefore pay attention to how you listen. Everything's going to be revealed. Therefore, pay attention to how you listen. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have not, even what they seem to have will be taken away. And again, this goes back to this question of why I talk in parable. Because those who have a grasp on the gospel, the whole thing will begin to un will open up. The seed will grow. It will begin to bear fruit in their lives, and and it will take hold. But those who have not, if they've been exposed to it, will lose even what they thought they had, which is the old cultural system will be undermined to some extent by their exposure to the gospel. And so this caution is really remarkable. I think it must go back to the, to, the, to the historical life of Jesus because I cannot imagine the evangelist dreaming it up. Now, I want to do something very quickly if there's time. This is the story of the Gerizim demoniac. Jesus goes into the Gentile region and it says, uh, they arrived at the country of the Gerizim, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped on land, a man of that city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He did not live in a house but in the tombs. 
So this is the living dead. This man is the living dead. He, li he has no clothes. He lives in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And this is, this is a tremendously powerful question. This is, the, this is, as we'll find out, the what the Greeks used to call the, the, the pharmakos, or the pharmakon, the, the, the designated outcast that makes the system work. You see what I mean? In, in, in uh, family psychodynamics, we call this the black sheep of the family. The one who becomes the worry wart for everybody else, therefore everybody else can... can all the problems can be can gravitate over to this one figure, and it it's a form of hygiene. Everybody else gets to kind of uh, feel better about themselves because of this fellow. I mean, it's not that simple, but in any event, this is the designated outcast of of this community. And so he and he's the low he's the low, lowest person in the community, the most the the most uh, uh, deficient in social status. The periodic scapegoat. He's everything that they, he's. He's the key to their social functioning. Uh, he's the outcast, the scapegoat. Jesus got. You know, I said John. John went to Herod, and Jesus went to the. Like, <laughs> there's been a hit and run. John chases the car, and Jesus goes to the person hit. Well, Jesus doesn't go into the city of the Gerasenes and and ask to see the mayor. Who does he see? Who comes up to him immediately? But the town scapegoat and the town scapegoat says to him what have you the son of the most high God to do with me the scapegoat which is one of the most important questions in the gospel Jesus is both Jesus is, uh, is, is exactly both so the man says, I beg you, do not torment me, for Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. The chronology of this story is a little screwed up in Luke, I must say. There's a parenthesis here. For many times it, the demon, had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wild. Now, here you have, this, this guy is the kept scapegoat periodically either at the at, at the promptings of his own madness or at the promptings of his community or some combination of the two he goes into his fit and it's very it's a, it's repetitive it's ritualistic every once in a while he goes into his madness breaks the bonds runs into the wilds naked wild crazy and carries with him the community's craziness and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he answers, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They, now it's plural, before it was singular, demon, now it's plural, they, the demons, begged him, Jesus, not to make them go back into the abyss. So there's a question of singular and plural here. This word legion means crowd mob so the demon's name is mob really it's the crowd a crowd a an undifferentiated crowd who's the constituting other for someone 
Every, every one of us has a constituting other, and no doubt a cluster of constituting other. But uh, if we're biblical people, if we're monotheist, we have ultimately one constituting other. We have one primary constituting other and a lot of others. Who's the constituting other? This man is crazy because the constituting other is a crowd. And I would say a lot of moderns are crazy for more or less the same reason. I think this is what we can read behind this question, what is your name? It means, who are you? The answer is, I am the other. The question is, who is the other? And the answer is, the mob, the crowd. This man is, is, has become simply a tool of the crowd. He is possessed by the crowd. And we don't appreciate possession. Jean-Miguel Orgullion has done a marvelous thing, although it has to be unpacked, uh, no doubt, in, in his book, The Puppet of Desire. The cure for possession is possession. We've talked about that here before. So, now it says, there's a hillside, there was a hillside, a large herd of swine feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, the demons came out of the man, entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, what this is, and Gerard brings this out in his analysis, it's, it's simply the signs being reversed. What you would expect, you know, in chapter 4, Jesus uh, is, is preaching, and he says, uh, Elijah came, there were, a lot, there were a lot of widows in Israel when Elijah came, but he went to this pagan. Elijah came, there were a lot of lepers in Israel, but he went to this pagan. And so the people in the synagogue rose up, filled with rage, uh, drove him out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. And that's a prefiguration of the crucifixion. So for Luke, being hurled off the cliff and the crucifixion are symbolically synonymous because being hurled off a cliff is a form of, it's an ancient, ancient form of collective scapegoating in which nobody's, n no one person is, uh, can be designated as the culpable party or as the executioner. So now you have the same thing, only the signs reversed. The scapegoat is rescued, the crowd goes off the hill. So you have the same mechanism, but the reversal of signs. In other words, something is breaking down here. The most important part of this story is of what follows. Namely, the swine herds saw what had happened. Now, they didn't say, hey, you owe us for our swine. By the way, the swine are unclean by Jewish standards, unclean animals. And this man was possessed by an unclean spirit. So there's a kind of symmetry to that. But the swine herds didn't say, hey, wait, you, you owe us for our animals. There's no economic problem here. I mean, there was, there's plenty of reason for us who think only in terms of economics. You know, we think everything has to do with uh, economic winners and losers and exploitation and all that, when in fact it's much more profound and religious than that. But, uh, so they don't complain about that. They ran off and told the uh, people in the city and the country. All the people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Now, the cure for possession is possession. He is, you see, he's this man who's just been liberated from these demons, he's not, he's not filling his briefcase to go off to the office. He's sitting at, or whatever, you know what I mean, whatever it would be. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The cure is right there. We have to recognize that's the cure. And, and that's what Christian conversion is. It cures us by putting at the core of our being 
a constituting other who is the risen Christ. So there he is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. He's back in, uh, he's civilized again. And in his right mind. Now, what does that mean? Is he, when we say in he, he's in his right mind, does that mean he's just as sane as all those people, the Gerizim people? No, he's a lot saner than they are. It doesn't say they're in their right mind. It says he's in his right mind because they come up and they see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, quote, and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? You see, this is what we have to, we have to uh, realize. Why were they afraid? They were afraid for the same reason that that cluster of nation, nations in, in the United Nations tried to blackball these these uh, these human rights organizations from coming into their country. They were afraid for precisely that same reason. They realized, you see, and they they sense what they sense. Now they don't realize. It's it's uh, it it. it, it surely would not have re reached consciousness yet but they somehow intuit that the linchpin pun intended the cotter pin of their whole cultural apparatus has just been eliminated he's sitting there in his right mind quote those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with a great fear. What has he done? He went right into that community. He went right up to the one that was at the heart of that cultural apparatus, and he restored him to lucidity and life and dignity. And you would think, well, that's a great thing. And the whole community who needed him the way he was before wants Jesus out. In the same way that that little cluster of nations wanted to keep out the uh, human rights organizations that came. Uh, so you see that. When Simeon, in chapter 2, in the, when Jesus, as an uh, infant, was taken to the temple, Simeon got up and said, pronounced a blessing, he said, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And I would say when they asked Jesus to leave, that is the beginning of a process of revealing their inner thoughts. That is to say, they would not have asked Jesus to leave had they not known at some level what you cannot know and still live inside a conventional sacrificial culture. You see, they knew at some level what he had done. They would not have asked him to leave if they had not realized at some level that he was interrupting the social mechanism on which they depended. Which means that they are beginning to recognize that there is such a social mechanism on which they depend. And the recognition that there is such a social mechanism is the beginning of the end of that mechanism.
So I think this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Simeon in chapter 2. And it's also a parable for the way the gospel works in history. You see, I think that's how we should read this. Let me begin by quoting something that uh, Henri de Lubac said about biblical interpretation and then try to use his observation to frame what I'm going to do. Uh, de Lubac says, there is the hackneedly moralizing interpretation of those who have not studied the subject historically. And there is the narrowly historical interpretation of those who have not gone deeply into it spiritually. These are, he says, the alternating forms of mediocrity. So what I want to try to do today is to talk about this section of Luke's Gospel in a way that uh, appeals to a historical understanding and to a spiritual understanding. And I hope I don't fall afoul of the, of the two alternating forms of mediocrity that uh, de Lubach has described here. But I think I've sensed something in this part of the gospel which I have not seen other people address. Now, as you know, there's so much written on the gospels that it's impossible for somebody to say this hasn't been addressed. But I can say that I wouldn't be addressing it, save for the fact that I've had a few conversations with Rene Girard of late about the matter, and these conversations have been so fascinating to me that it piqued my interest in this particular theme. And so when I began reading the Gospels, I found myself uh, recognizing this theme in, this, in, these, uh, in these passages we'll be talking about today. Now, <clears throat> I say I had this came in a conversation with uh, uh, Rene, which it did. I, I feel a little bit, and, and it's a, a topic that he has yet to address in print. I can tell you he's now in the process of, of doing so in, in the book he's working on. So I feel a little bit sheepish about scooping him when it's his really his idea, you know, that I'm, uh, that I'm probing here. But I'm at least not doing it in print, and I'm also doing it with, uh, with uh, full acknowledgement that I am uh, stealing his insight. So, so what I want to do is take a look at uh, this, this portion of the Gospel and think about the business of the remnant, which is a a widespread biblical idea. Uh, but let me work my way into that. First of all, the Gospels are filled with stories indicating that Jesus' disciples found some of the things that he said enigmatic and that these things remained perplexing to them until after the crucifixion and resurrection. Many, many passages in the Gospels to that effect. And what I want to do today is think about that and ask why that is the case. Now, I want to start with a reference to Herod, which is the following. Now, Herod the ruler heard about all that had taken place, all that Jesus had been doing, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John, John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others 
that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, quote, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? End quote. And then the last verse in this passage is, and he tried to see him. So Herod is curious. He has heard these things. He has heard the speculation. He's shared in some of the speculation. And we also find out in this passage that he has beheaded John the Baptist. Now, the idea that Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead is, in one way of looking at it, is a false resurrection story. But in another way, even though the, the terminology here is resurrection terminology, raised from the dead, uh, etc., used twice in this passage, in fact what we're talking about is something more like reincarnation. Now, I don't want to go into reincarnation here today. That's a big subject. But I think it's interesting that it's a very robust idea and I would say that in passing only, I would say that reincarnation, which is an ancient forms of which are, are in many ancient primitive religious traditions, I would say that reincarnation is ultimately a, a belief in reincarnation is ultimately a manifestation of both sacrificial and mimetic effects. In the first instance, the reincarnation takes place when the victim, when the, when the uh, power and ferocity of the victim uh, is invested in the sacred executioner. When, for example, the sacred executioner drinks the blood or eats the flesh of the victim and thereby inherits his, his power and ferocity. That's a form of a reincarnation. And I would say you have, uh, I would say that that, that reincarnation has sacrificial origins, which is uh, not not a great breakthrough because so much in uh, archaic religion has sacrificial origins. It also obviously has Eucharistic ramifications or Eucharistic, an echo of the Eucharistic uh, uh, imagery, although the Eucharist is exactly the opposite of it, in which when we get to that, maybe we can talk about that. When Paul says, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me, there's a hint of something that has a parallel in reincarnational thinking, but it's not reincarnation at all. But one has to recognize these, these parallels because they're significant. In any event, just to mention in passing that what, what's going through Herod's head is something a little bit closer to reincarnation than real resurrection. Nevertheless, it says here that Herod was perplexed and that he wanted to see Jesus. And one asked about this desire to see Jesus, which is Herod's desire to see Jesus. Now, uh, in the Passion story, we have the following passage in chapter 23. Herod was delighted to see Jesus. He had heard about him and had been wanting to set eyes on him. Now, for Luke, you know, to set eyes on him and to see him are two different things. And Herod now finally sets eyes on him, but he, does he see him? This is really the fundamental question. When does one see Jesus or see the Christ? Well, Herod sets eyes on him, and as soon as he sets eyes on him, he begins to mock him. So, 
he doesn't see him, but he desires to see him, and all he can do is see him with these eyes that are squinting and potentially mocking. So I would ask to begin with the question about Herod's desire to see. What is Herod's desire to see? Or let's say this, if we, have, if we as moderns are interested in seeing Jesus and knowing more about him, is it because we have Herod's desire? Or is it for some other reason? I would say, this is slightly scandalous, no doubt, but I would say that uh, the search for the historical Jesus can degenerate into Herod's desire to see Jesus, which is to say that it can easily be conducted by those who want to show that Jesus is not the exalted figure that the Christians have supposed him to have been. And so I would say it can degenerate into Herod's desire to see Jesus. And as Luke shows, Herod cannot see Jesus. All he can do is set eyes on him. All, both of those things about Herod's desire and also about uh, reincarnation are totally aside from what I really want to talk about this morning. But one thing isn't in this passage, and that is what I would call the ruler's epistemological handicap. You know, my friend Andrew McKenna has this passage, I quote it practically every week, the victim's epistemological privilege. And now I think we can put beside it something else. And this passage in Luke about Herod helps us do that. It's Herod, not Herod, in this case it's Herod's, but it's the ruler's epistemological handicap. He cannot see, even though he sets eyes on him. He cannot see. And that's because of his position structurally as ruler. And it's that position which keeps him from seeing. When Paul said, for example, had the powers of this world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, we can connect that with the ruler's epistemological handicap. They could not have known because, not, because the key to their power and their being in power was the misrecognition of precisely what they did not know when they crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, in their whole the whole system, the whole power system, the whole structure depended on the misrecognition. They could not be in that position of power and have that power and still uh, benefit from that system uh, were not the effects of the misrecognition still operative. So the inability to see what Jesus has come to make visible is the key to the survival of the, whole, the old sacred system. So the ruler's epistemological handicap. Now what I want to do is not talk about the rulers. I use this passage about Herod just to set up the problem. But fundamentally, Christianity doesn't depend on Herod ever being able to see Jesus. It depends very much on those friends and disciples of Jesus who survive him being able to see him, the risen Christ, being able to recognize what his life was, uh, awakening to, the, to what he came to bring into the world. So it depends very much on that. So we don't, Herod doesn't matter to us except that he defines the problem. When the rest of us are unable to see Jesus, it is because to some extent we share in the ruler's epistemological handicap. Epistemology simply means the way we know things, and an epistemological approach or uh, attitude or uh, capacity can be measured in terms of its, of its real ability to know what is true, what is real. 
So we have an epistemological structure that has greater or lesser capacity. And, and what I'm talking about is an epistemological structure that has to do with the old anthropos. And it operates, uh, it makes a whole lot of the world intelligible, and it leaves one little part of the world completely obscured. And that is the whole the thing at the heart of the sacrificial apparatus, the fate of the victim. It blanks that out. It blocks that out, and it makes the rest of it intelligible. And so it has an epistemological blind spot. And it's not, it's not accidental. The epistemological blind spot of the old sacred system is not accidental. It's absolutely essential to it. And Herod is sitting on top of that, on the top of the pyramid, at the heart of which is that epistemological blind spot. So he couldn't see Jesus if he was nose to nose with him because he simply can't see what he represents. But all of us who are by no means Herod, nevertheless we share in that world that Herod is the incarnation of. And so to some extent we share this epistemological blind spot. We share it less, perhaps, though we still share it, than the followers of Jesus because the followers of Jesus, we have to remember, are living before the epistemological structure has been undermined by the cross. So we're talking about... Now, the marvelous thing about the gospel is it's written after the cross, telling the story of what happened before the cross, which is the only possible way it could have been written because it's only after the epistemological shackles have been broken that we can go back and really understand the story that went before. So that's, that's what's happening. And what I want to look at now is this... Is this blockage and I want to take it seriously because I think we don't realize how powerful it was but if you read the Gospels carefully you realize that these people couldn't see something that we can see and they couldn't see it not because they couldn't understand Arabic which is the language Jesus was speaking they had they could understand what he was saying and he was saying it absolutely explicitly it was that what he was saying was so counter to their their enculturated expectations and experience that they, it simply didn't compute. And so I want to think about that. All of this may sound like, what is Gil talking about? When we get to the end of today, I started to start with it, but I decided I've changed the gospel text around slightly in order to bring out what I want to bring out. Uh, but I stayed with the structure more or less. And at the very end, there's a passage which makes it perfectly clear that what I'm talking about is true. So I tell you beforehand so you won't think I'm off on some wild goose chase. Okay. First of all, we get here in a, in a very uh, tangential way. We find out that John has been beheaded. Now, in... The other Gospels, this is a much more dramatic moment. It, it, it comes in Luke's Gospel uh, very offhandedly, and Luke tends to deal with John the Baptist offhandedly. Nevertheless, we have to realize that when Jesus, when Jesus found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded, surely it, it would have made him keenly aware of his, of the, his own possible fate uh, and in, uh, made him eager to do whatever had to be done in order for that 
fate to have consequence. So the next thing we hear is the following. Then, then has a kind of a relational cause and effect, not exactly cause and effect, but certainly one thing flows into another. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all, the, all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, many exegetes will say there's a sense of urgency in these passages. Suddenly Jesus seems to have, the Lucan Jesus seems to be urgent about this project of preaching uh, the gospel and healing uh, and so on, proclaiming the kingdom. And I, I think that's true. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what is driving this sense of urgency? Now, Jesus is sending 12 of them out. In Mark's gospel, he sends them out two by two, so you have, a, you have six squads. And Palestine is a very big place. The world itself is even bigger. Uh, and Jesus seems to see on the horizon looming his own demise. The question is, and there's a sense of urgency here, and the question is, why the urgency? Does he think, for example, that these 12 men or these six pairs of men are going to make a, su a sufficiently successful uh, uh, mission that uh, things will improve? You see, what, would the ur what is the urgency here? Is the urgency to get the word out to preach, heal, and so on? Well, obviously that's true. We can't, we can't accuse Jesus of, of having some ulterior motive when he goes out to heal and preach. Nevertheless, I don't think the urgency of the, of the sending out the twelve can be linked to that. Because as Jesus says, you know, the poor will always be with you, the suffering will always be with you. Now, you'll always, there'll always be plenty of time to go out and do some curing and healing and forgiving and, and driving out of uh, demons and so on. So what's the urgency? The next passage says, He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. Take nothing. Be totally dependent. And so we think, well, that's, you see, that's radical Christian poverty, dependence on God, dependence on the, on the care uh, of others, and so on. And we find this in Paul's writings, uh, his own uh, reliance on people to take care of him and so on. Nevertheless, I think we overlook something here because later on, <clears throat> Jesus says in chapter 22, in his farewell discourse, Jesus says to them, when I sent you out without a purse or sandals or a bag, did you lack anything? And they said, no, not a thing. And he said to them, But now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag, and one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was counted among the lawless, and, end quote, and indeed what is written about me is being fulfilled, end quote, quoting Jesus within the quote. In this later passage, it's as though the novitiate is over, and now he's preparing them for the long haul, the Lucan long haul. Luke has a sense of history uh, that, that uh, the Christian proclamation of the Christian message, message is a long haul historical 
uh, activity and, and one must be prepared for it. It's something like being as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. So the long haul. But notice the difference. It's not as though Jesus is averse to sending people out to preach the gospel with their, their uh, bags and tunics and staff and little supplies uh, and so on and so forth. Later on, he says, pack up, you know. Get, you know, put as much on your, on your donkey as you can and go on out. Now, but here, not nothing. So the question is, why? He then says, Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. End quote. And then the passage is, They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. Well, if you notice, Jesus prepares them for failure. He doesn't tell them what to do if they're well received. One supposes they don't need to know that. But he does prepare them for failure. He says, when you go someplace and they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and leave. In other words, he seems to know that they're going to be rejected. And so why is he sending them out? I would say to you, he's sending them out among other reasons, he's obviously, it's not, as I said, not ulterior motive. Uh, obviously, he's sending them out to heal people and cure them and forgive them and so on. But I think he is sending them out so that they might experience that rejection in the preaching of the gospel. Not for the experience itself, which it, nobody's particularly fond of, but because of the moral and epistemological quickening that can accompany it. Do you see what I'm saying? To preach the gospel and experience rejection under the right circumstances is to experience a moral and epistemological quickening which I think the Luke and Jesus feels his disciples need. And I think they need it because they need to be they need some inoculation. And I think they need inoculation because Jesus at this point, the Luke and Jesus, I would say, at this point has begun to realize that his disciples are incapable of understanding what he's saying and that their ability to understand what, he, what he's saying and what his life and death means, that ability will only be there after the crucifixion because only the crucifixion is capable of destroying the epistemological blind spot that keeps them, from, keeps them from knowing that. And therefore, what he has to do is prepare them to experience it after the crucifixion. Now, I say the Luke and Jesus because I have no idea what, it, what the historical Jesus uh, did or said in this regard. But the, the Jesus we have in Luke's Gospel seems to me to now have his eye on creating a remnant. And by that I mean people who... Now, let's stop and think about a remnant. Now, this goes back to my conversation with Renee. The cross, in order to expose and undermine the key to the old sacrificial system, it has to expose a working version of it. It can't expose a collapsed and failed version of it because 
only a successful version of it is the thing itself. And therefore, in order to expose it, one has to shed light on a su successful sacrificial event, which, in many respects, the crucifixion was. In order to expose this, the successful sacrificial event, its spellbinding, mystifying power has to be very great, but not total. It has to leave somebody out. There has to be somebody or some small group sufficiently immunized to the spellbinding power of that sacrificial uh, vortex to be able to resist it and remain more or less lucid and see it for what it is. This group, which the, bib for the biblical term for which is remnant, this group has to be sufficiently large and independent not to be swept up into the sacrificial vortex, but it has to be, it can't be too large. Because if it is too large, it destroys the functioning unanimity, which is what makes the sacrificial system successful. So in order for it to expose a successful sacrificial uh, event, this remnant has to be small enough so that, the, so that those who are caught up in the sacrificial logic constitute a functioning unanimity. You, you see what I'm trying to say? So now we have the, structurally the problem of the remnant. 